0: Well, aloha from Maui, and welcome to this week's Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. This week we're going to talk about the legend of the grail, the holy legend of the grail. But again, because of the nature of this program, that we study mysticism and metaphysics and that which has been hidden or occulted because of the Inquisition, persecution and prosecution by the church, and also because traditionally mystics have wanted their knowledge to remain living and dynamic and flexible. And the fear has always been that if mysticism ever became a religion, then it would become dogmatic, fixed, and crystallized as religions or any institution That's the nature of an institution, to stop growing, right? And uh, so they wanted to, uh, to avoid that. And so there's a couple of reasons why there are these secret traditions, not only in Christianity, but in all religions. And if you look at the mysteries, you find that they have much more in common than the religions themselves. The The mysteries that stand above or behind all religion. The allegory, uh, the metaphor, or the symbolism. Hold on. Um, One of the reasons, somebody asked me this the other day, I'm going to say this again. One of the reasons this is a class and not a radio show is I want to be able to stop and uh, and and pause to drink my coffee every once in a while, so forgive me while (laughs) again, it's still morning here I used to be an amateur radio, still am, actually we always have coffee when we do amateur radio commercial radio, no dead air you're not allowed to do that so the mystery traditions are, by their very nature, uh, a secret. And uh, there's a consequence to pay for that. There's always somebody who comes along and is suspicious of those who are secretive. What do you have to hide? Well, I've just mentioned what we have to hide as mystics. What we have, first of all, is our own personal insight and understanding to these divine mysteries. They're very holy. Very personal, very intimate, and a lot of women and men who identify with mysticism, whether they call themselves mystics or not um again it's a it's an odd aggregation of um of people that don't share much except the sense that they're gonna have to go beyond any one given any one particular religion to find something fulfilling. We're going to have to study all the religions and then save, if you will, talk about salvation, what works for us from those religions and reject what doesn't. Well, of course, all religion will tell you that's not a path to heaven and you're going to end up in hell. Uh, One of the benefits of uh, studying mysticism for me As I discovered, I'm already in hell. (laughs) That's what this is. Uh, Our job is uh, to be conscious of our potential, I would argue, and bring heaven to earth, bring heaven to hell. Uh, So many people are interested in getting out of here and going to someplace else called heaven and leaving the mess behind. uh, I would suggest that we can do more than that, and uh, here is all we've got. There's really no place to go. So this uh, story of the Grail is a story I'd like to explain today from uh, a mystical overview, again, uh, not the one right way or the truth behind the silly stories of King Arthur, but just to pull the curtain back, we'll suggest maybe a framework of what King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, the Knights Templar, and the secret traditions that we now know as Freemasonry and uh, the Priory of Sion um, and the Rosicrucians in the um, Judeo um, Christian traditions. Uh, in the Middle East and West it's an interesting story I'm anxious to share it with you but again I I hasten to add up front here that you know again this is not religion and we're not talking about the one right way or the only right way Uh, this is a rich story a rich allegory Uh, Arthur, the round table Camelot And uh, most importantly, I would argue, the search for the grail, what that's really all about. A little later in the class, maybe in about 40 minutes, 45 minutes or so, I will take um, uh, questions and comments, uh, both by text and by telephone. And uh, whether you're listening by web feed or the telephone, you can use either to uh, submit your questions or comments. Uh, You'll see a little text table on the web page in front of you. If it disappears or it's not there, uh, click on the button that says ask a question. And you can type your question in with your name and your city. Be sure and hit submit. And when we go to the comments or questions in in, uh, a few minutes, it'll be there waiting for me. You can do that at any time, even before the program begins. And for those of you who are on the phone or who would like to uh, go to the phone, um, and we do have phone numbers in all areas of the United States, but if you click the button that says Listen by Phone, uh, you'll get an area co- a couple of area codes, a couple of numbers that are suggested. But lots of people don't have the flat rate service yet. So if you're concerned about a toll call and you're still paying by the minute, and you'll see a button that says Local Numbers, and if you click on that, you'll be able to find an area code near you. And the way that works is you just punch in the conference ID, you'll be prompted, and uh, you can listen in that way. Like if you got to run in the middle of uh, uh, the class, suddenly you got to leave, punch it up on the telephone, put it on speaker, take it with you. It's pretty cool. I have a friend who does that in the car, Listens on the phone through a cell phone and plugs it into the speakers in his car with uh, I don't know some sort of device. So um, it's all doable. It's all fun, and we love the medium. Remember, <clears throat> I think I mentioned we do have a podcast and streaming replays available as well. So with that, let's get into into our uh, our topic the search for the grail the holy grail the legend of the grail first of all what's a grail well it's usually thought of as a cup or a chalice uh, arguably given language semantics and the the challenge of various translations through time a grail could be a plate or a dish could be a flat plate could be a bowl could be a cup or a chalice. The Holy Grail is often thought, of course, to be the chalice or the cup that was used by Christ during the Last Supper. Um, and many people continue to believe that side of the myth. There is, however, an equally strong belief that the Grail is a cup or a chalice that caught some of Christ's blood during the crucifixion and therefore has special powers that the grail like the robe or the spear of destiny or other relics from the crucifixion would be endowed with magical powers. I believe that it's still true that every Catholic altar um, has embedded within it some sort of relic, uh, a shard of the cross or something holy dating to uh, Christ's life. Now, I don't know if that is still true or if the, or if the Church uh, has upheld that, but that was the tradition certainly through the great cathedrals and, and even into modern times. Well, like the, uh, like the art the Ark of the Covenant, in that story. The grail's been lost. Some people say, well, the grail is in the Ark. But many of us who come to this from a mystical or philosophical rather than a strict religious view are always looking at the rich allegory and metaphor in religion. In fact, it seems a shame to me that fundamentalists in any religion would... Deny the allegory, the poetry, and the beautiful symbolism, and rip that all out by insisting, as a fundamentalist, whether Christian, Jew, Muslim, that you have to take everything literally. Which is odd, since even the fundamentalist doesn't take everything literally. Um, I've asked evangelicals and born-agains if that were the case then what does it mean to be born again? Doesn't that mean that y'all believe in reincarnation? Oh no, no, that doesn't really mean born again. And I said, but you know, I, I thought you're taking everything literally. No, not there. So like everything else in spirituality and religion, we're picking and choosing, aren't we? What we what we want to believe. So if that's the case, then why not enhance whatever literal meaning you get from reading holy books with an openness to the rich allegory and parable that often stands out. Sometimes it just jumps out at you. And the grail legend really is full of of allegory and not really meant to be taken literally. Um, One of the great things about symbolism and even satire, often Voltaire gets credit for developing the art of of satire to hide secrets from the aristocracy or uh, the royalty, the church or the state at the time, it's what later in the Nixon administration came to be called plausible deniability. You know you know, these mystical authors like Voltaire are trying to keep these ancient secrets alive and the church or the state is trying to control the secrecy, you know, to to, to the secret and limit the concept to their own particular interpretation serving the institution rather than the search for truth. So That's that's often what we face, but to deny the allegory, even, I mean, again, even a fundamentalist would have to admit that in Matthew, Christ says he teaches in parable and teaches in allegory because you wouldn't understand me if I told you straight out. So I have to use these these stories. Like, uh, if your faith was like that of a mustard seed, then you could move mountains and. You know these things are not meant to be taken literally. They're they're allegory. Well, what do, what do we do with them? Um, and and how does a church control uh, an assemblage of of people who how all have their own interpretation, their own um, sense of the meaning and, and, and the beauty of the allegory or the metaphor? Well. Of course, they can't control you. So the nature of the church or the institution is to have a party line, and this is the meaning, and we're going to reduce it to the fundamentals, and that's as far as we go. So as victims of religion, most of us then think of the grail only as this cup. Uh, I'd like to suggest today that in the mystical traditions of the world, uh, the grail is a very powerful symbol of a concept that the church does not even want you to know about, a concept that is so secret that this is the reason that millions and millions and millions of people, women, men, and children, have been murdered by various churches in crusades or jihads of one, <laughs> some sort of genocidal p- pogrom uh, of one type or another. The the slaughter of humanity in the name of God is one of the most obscene things about life on earth, and still another reason I call this hell, this is hell, it, it, it hurts as much here as it ever is going to. This this is eternal damnation. Uh, Unless or until you get this concept of higher self. Now, to keep it simple, the, the, the Catholic and Protestant churches basically are arguing that you have to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and see him as the Son of God and equal to God and not separate from God in order for your sins to be redeemed and for you to enter upon death the kingdom of heaven, eternal life and uh, salvation. Now, what I'd like to suggest to you is that what Christ represents to many mystics is a middle point between the father aspect and the mother aspect of reality. Like the Buddha nature, Christ represents the middle of the trinity, all right? the, the center or the middle between spirit and matter. Spirit has been portrayed traditionally as male in gender because it is causative to the material world. The material world, the very word material is based on mater, madre, mother. The material world is receptive to spirit, and so we see mother nature as the juxtaposition to father, God, right? But they're just polarities, they're not meant to be literal genders. God, a man, would be rather limiting and not very divine mother nature, what does that mean? It, it's a reference to, to gender. God could not be less than all that is, so certainly would include the feminine aspect. Uh, the material world is obviously masculine as well as feminine, but it's receptive in a sense of polarity to the the positive end of the bar magnet the, the causative end so think of a bar magnet the positive end being father or spirit and the so called negative end being mother or or matter the magnetic field around the bar magnet would be the Christ or the Buddha nature the son of that mother and father Okay, and when Christ talks about nobody coming to the father but through me Religion tells you, Christianity tells you that that means you must accept Christ as your Savior to go to heaven, as I've already expressed. The mystic would say, well, now, wait a minute. If Christ, like Buddha, represents the soul, this middle ground between the ground of God, even Plato said the soul shares the ground of God and the ground that we know of as earth. There has to be some middle element. In Egyptian philosophy, we've done a couple of classes recently on ancient hermetic or Egyptian philosophy, we have exactly the same trinity, king, prince, and queen, which is Osiris, Horus, and Isis, and a very similar legend around Horus even born of a virgin mother, uh, crucified um, for his rabble-rousing, and a story that is like the story of Christ in many ways, but predates it by several thousand years. But here again, the son, or the offspring, the progeny of spirit and matter, is this middle ground that many mystics would argue is the soul. Remember, Christ was called... The Son of God, but also the Son of Man, as if He had a leg in both worlds. You see, uh, heaven and earth, and was kind of a bridge. So nobody comes to the Father but through Me. Could have a very different meaning than the church. The church is a literal. Well, you got to you know get on board here or else it, it could mean that nobody can approach their spiritual, uh, an understanding of themselves spiritually without understanding first the nature of the oversoul. And uh, the Church, Catholic and Protestant, has pretty much pulled the soul uh, out of the game altogether, pretty much denied its pre-existence. And I'll tell you what I mean here. Um, the basic belief in Christianity and Protestants get this from the Catholics is that upon conception when sperm meets egg God makes a new soul and tucks it inside that zygote and it's not in the shape of a little baby just like you break open an acorn, you're not going to see a tiny little oak tree in there, but the potential, arguably, for the oak tree is in the acorn, and similarly, the soul, the potential of the human soul, it's argued by the Church, is installed by God, initiated upon conception. Well, that makes sex a pretty holy thing. Again, that's why they believe many of the strict Christians that any kind of sex outside of marriage or without an intention to procreate uh, is fornication and some horrible thing. God doesn't. The fact that it's pleasurable is what? (laughs) I don't know. A temptation, I guess, a bad thing, right? Um, But of course, uh, we'd argue that it's pleasurable. Because we're encouraged to do it, whether married or not, but you can see the church's argument here that god is is installing or fashioning a new soul upon conception. so you you know if 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 a man and a woman get together and get pregnant, it's you've commanded God in a sense, according to the church, uh, like you've ordered God, create this new soul. And God does it. God has to do that. Um, I think the Church might differ with the way I'm presenting its position, but nevertheless, you you get the idea. Now, what I'd like to point out as we talk about the legend of the Grail as a mystical legend, uh, is that the Grail as a cup represents a pre-existing oversoul that in the beginning, when all things were created, heaven and earth, all souls were created, arguably. All right? Arguably. I'm not telling you what's right and wrong. I'm not telling you what you must believe or what you should not believe. Okay? I'm just offering you, like Rod Sterling uh, submitted for your approval uh, some uh, alternative points of view. And, uh, I will tell you that many of the founding fathers of the Catholic Church in the second and third centuries, men like Origen, were very strong believers in the pre-existence of the soul, a so-called oversoul that existed on its own plane, certainly above and free of form, sharing the ground of God, yet from a distinct point of view it's almost as if the soul understands the oneness of all things in a way that we really don't but at the same time can project itself or extend itself into form where memory of that oneness is lost save for a craving or a desire that we describe as love a magnetic attraction toward the oneness from which we sprung. So, the idea of an oversoul is that there is a reservoir of tens of billions of souls above Earth and that upon conception or maybe later, depends on who you believe, there are uh, many people uh, in mystical uh, traditions, uh, philosophies that, that see life coming into form in a series of stages. There's really not one point where the soul enters. Or it could be a particular thread upon conception, another thread when brain waves or fetal heartbeat begins. Um, I've had teachers tell me that there's a Uh, another silver cord that is connected uh, as long as 18 months after uh, a child is born into form. So it could be a series of stages or connections or hookups or incarnations, however you want to look at it. But I guess the basic difference we're talking about here is that Catholics and Protestants alike are taught that the soul is created or fashioned or formed, made new by God upon birth and, and tucked inside your body someplace, right? And the mystic is saying, no, that's not quite it. All souls exist in heaven, if you will. And upon conception, they incarnate, they descend into form. An arrangement that this soul has with the soul of its parents. It agrees. Also, the idea is that souls live in ashrams or groups. There's the one, and in form we are the many, so as the soul we be the group. <laughs> Another trinity, the one, the group, and the many. Souls work in groups or ashrams. Um, Some belief systems say there are seven ashrams or groups of souls where you and the souls of your parents work out your incarnation. And there might be a few dozen or a few hundred in a particular group that works together and that it's likely you're incarnated again and again and again with these same souls. Uh, uh, You know, that pretty girl you see across the room in high school and instantly fall in love with just might have been your father in, <laughs> in another lifetime, or your, your son, your daughter, your, your, your cousin, the girl next door, in another lifetime. We don't know these things. But they're attempts to describe a unifying concept, attempts to make sense out of the bigger picture. And so here's an alternative, simply, that the search for the grail is not really a search so much for the cup that Christ used at the Last Supper, or the chalice that may have caught some of the blood at the crucifixion, but a symbol, a search for the heart and the soul of Christianity. There's a film you may have seen a few years back called The Fisher King with Jeff Bridges and Robin Williams, in which uh, Robin Williams, a half-crazed street person in New York City, is in uh, Central Park in the middle of the night, full moon night. Actually, Robin Williams in the scene is naked. And Jeff Bridges is there with him. And Robin Williams tells the story of the Fisher King. And it's a story of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. The story, not the whole thing, <laughs> a story from, you know, that epic legend that, as I mentioned in the newsletter, goes back to about the 12th century. There have been a number of authors and many editions of King Arthur's stories. But uh, they first appear in about 1190 or so, and uh, written in French, and then have evolved. Uh, I want to talk about Joseph of Arimathea also in the connection to England, which I think is interesting. But um, in fact, let me do that now, and then we'll come back to this idea of of the uh, the Grail. Joseph of Arimathea is an interesting character in that he's mentioned in all four of the Christian Gospels, uh, has different names, but is also known as Joseph of Glastonbury, which many of you know is a city in the south of England, where very near most of the crop circle activity. And traditionally, In the time of Christ, there were rich tin mines around Glastonbury in southern England, and Joseph of Arimathea, or Joseph of Glastonbury, was supposedly a very wealthy tin merchant and was in very good stead with the Romans, of course, who needed that tin um, and other precious metals and valuable metals for their industry for the building of their of their empire for weapons of war and such so Joseph was a very wealthy tin merchant it is said hailing originally from the Glastonbury area in southern England said also to be perhaps the uncle of Jesus in other words some say the brother of Mary Magdalene. Some would say the uncle of Mary Magdalene. So he's either uh, an uncle or a cousin to Jesus of some sort. Uh, None of this is very clear except that during the missing years, from Christ being about 12 years old to about 30 years old, you understand there's nothing in the Gospels about these missing years. Well, it's said that. Jesus, as a teenager, traveled much of the world with his uncle, um, either his mom's brother or his mother's uncle, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, to southern England. So if you've ever wondered, what's the hookup between King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table? What's British about the story of Christianity? Uh, This may be the link. It is said that Joseph uh, of Arimathea also took Christ to South America and to Hindustan, which we know of today as India, where he encountered not only uh, Brahmin teachings, uh, Hindu, uh, but also Buddhist uh, teachings as well. And it's likely that Christ was very, very well-traveled thanks to Joseph of Arimathea. If you ask a uh, fundamentalist, who Joseph of Arimathea is, they'll probably tell you that um, he owned the tomb that was used to uh, bury Christ. So uh, he went to Pontius Pilate and and asked for the body, and it was put in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. That's probably the to, to fundamentalists anyway the the first and the most part only thing they know about joseph of arimathea and his relation to christ some would say this was part of the larger plot that involved christ surviving the crucifixion and um, that he never died on the cross but married mary magdalene was spirited off to france and of course we have the uh, da vinci code which is fiction and some of Dan Brown's other work and books like Holy Blood, Holy Grail, which are nonfiction, very well documented, to suggest that Christ and Mary may have actually lived in southern France. And that group of Christian mystics known as the Cathars um, came up around uh, this this exodus, if you will, uh, Christ having to go into hiding in France. The idea of Christ surviving the crucifixion, however, is challenging to the church, which is based everything on his death and his blood rather than his life and his, his, uh, his, his words of encouragement. And that brings us back to this idea of an oversoul. You see, what are the implications if the grail and Christ, both represent a pre-existing soul. Well, it starts with the idea that your soul is in heaven now. So take a breath and consider what happens to the grip of the church on its people. And the church has been the state until recently and even now has an inordinate influence on government, but for the so-called Dark Ages, for, you know, a thousand years and more, uh, the Church has had a grip over the state, or some could argue that the state would use religion to control the masses. And this argument between church and state, of course, has been going on from from time out of mind. But part of the way that's controlled is to be told that um, your soul, the the stake of the soul, is a, a question. It could be going to hell, or it could go to heaven. You've only got these two options. Now the Catholics played around for a while. The purgatory and this place for babies called limbo. But they changed their mind on that. There was some sort of divine revelation. They decided it was inconvenient. So limbo is out. Purgatory went away. And we're back uh, to just two choices, heaven or earth, as repositories for the soul. The the, the argument that the mystic offers that challenges uh, the church, even though, as I said, some of the early fathers of the church were were pagans and mystics who believed in the pre-existence of the soul. If your soul is already in heaven, if you exist as a separated human form, as an extension of a soul that exists now, above and free of form, then your destiny is not a matter of question. It's settled. You're going to heaven. You live in heaven now. That your soul is evolving and benefiting, as is God or the one life, from your existence, basically from facing fear and transmuting or, if you will, redeeming fear and ignorance into love and understanding. It could be argued that that's simply why we exist, to experience, to face fear and ignorance and lift it into love and understanding. That's our job. And the soul benefits from that, and the one life benefits, obviously, from that. But if the soul exists now, above and free of form, if you're in heaven now, you were in heaven before you came here, you've always been there you just keep incarnating over and over again from the ground of God, that suggests that a higher self, a soul self, is available to you now. That you can access that the Christ or the Buddha nature is within you now as your own oversoul. And you can access that. And that it's a higher authority than the king or the prince or the ruling tyrant, dictator, president, whomever, local police chief, you know, you have a higher authority. <laughs> you know, which may be the father aspect itself, but on the way there there has been suggested in all of these mystical traditions that there has to be a middle ground. There has to be a a a place. I mentioned the Hermetic philosophy, and we talked a few weeks about a few weeks ago about the uh, second rubric on the Emerald Tablet: "As above, so below; and as it is below, so it is above." Well, someone suggested above and below what? <laughs> above what and below what? Maybe there's a middle ground. And, of course, three is such a powerful number of the, the um, you know, the three-legged stool that never rocks, you know, such a, the triangle, such a powerful, stable symbol uh, that the threeness of things, even seven is revered as a magical number because it's three above and three below, but there's still one in the middle, so, you see in a seven, three above, three below, one in the middle. So threes and sevens are very powerful because of this whole idea of the middle or the soul, or if you will, Christ saying, nobody comes to the Father but through me. Practically meaning you can't know yourself spiritually without understanding love. The soul corresponds to love. The father aspect to divine will, the soul to love. And consider, what if your soul representing divine love, perfect love, Christed love, the Buddha level of compassion, what if that was within you? Or above you, but accessible to you? Or behind you, or all around you, containing you, or you containing it? But it's available to you a higher frequency when you get quiet. When you breathe and relax and let go of fear, you can walk on water. When the waters of your emotional nature are calm, and all those voices in your head, that monkey mind, that chattering of ideas competing for your attention and demanding during every moment of your waking state and even as you sleep at night, the thoughts continuing on and on and on and on. Pay attention to me. Look at this. What about that? Many of them full of guilt and recrimination, negative, self-loathing thoughts, tormenting so many people. And then reinforced by an emotional nature that seems out of control. How would you access this oversoul, this higher self? But through sitting still, calming the emotional nature, and quieting the mind. And so we see a whole new approach to prayer as... A meditation or a rapport where you would open yourself, uh, create a path of least resistance to this oversoul. Now, this also raises the fascinating question of who people are praying to when they pray. Many people would say, well, I don't pray to my own soul because my soul is inside me. It's not above me. Benner, you're crazy. (laughs) The soul was fashioned upon conception it's within me. And when I die, it's either going to go to heaven or hell. All right. So who do you pray to? Well, maybe they pray to Jesus. Maybe they pray to God the Father. Maybe they don't distinguish. Many Christians don't even distinguish between the Son and the Father. But then are challenged by the only prayer Christ ever taught, which was to the Father. So if Christ only taught one prayer, and it's our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, um, why would you pray to Jesus? Or why would you call Jesus the King, when Jesus would be the Prince or the Son of the King? Well, Catholics also pray to saints. And uh, many religions, people pray to their ancestors, which makes sense, right? Like anybody above there, the ascended masters, the great white lodge, the brotherhood of elder masters, who, who who you got? (laughs) Who's up there? Anybody, throw me a line here. I'm open to some help, right? Because I'll decide the quality of the information that comes through. It's not that hard to know whether you're motivated by fear or love. It's what it comes down to. Are you motivated by fear or love? But that's where the challenge begins, and that's why this uh, information is so frightening. This is why 8 million women were burned at the stake as witches, this is why millions of Christians were killed by crusaders in the Inquisitions as well. The, um, the old saying, um, kill them all and let God sort them out, does not go back to Vietnam or the Second World War. That is, quoting one of the crusaders, when asked by his troops, you're asking us to kill all these Christians. How do we know which Christians are the good Christians and which Christians are the bad Christians? And it came down from the Pope. Kill them all. God will sort them out. God will know that it doesn't matter. Just slaughter everybody in the name of God, in the name of precious holy love. And this is still happening today. We still have chaplains on the battlefield. We're still blessing bombs Nuclear weapons were blessed before they were dropped. This is bizarre. It's a, a, absolutely. Um, it'll it'll make less sense to our ancestors than human sacrifice and golden calves make sense to us. It's the the weirdest form of um, that, and there's nothing spiritual <laughs> in killing people. Uh, When your religion supposedly is about love, nevertheless, we understand the workings of the either or mind. That's fear at work. That's what that is. The enemy is fear. Evil is fear and ignorance. That's all we got. It's It's really quite simple. Understanding is love, and love is understanding. And this is a challenge to each of us consider the possibility that we exist simultaneously in form as separated beings, but also above and free of form as a soul that works in a group of other souls, like a family, and simultaneously as part of the one life. That as the one life, the the concept of god or the godhead the all-knowing single i knows all sees all what is it uh, omnipotent omniscient and omnipresent right but as the soul imagine sharing the ground of god meaning you're aware of the oneness that there is no separation And yet, you have a unique point of view. You're only individuated to the extent that you have not a separated, but an individuated point of view. But you're still aware that there's only one life. That would be the soul. And then the soul extends itself in the form where we move into a physical world of separated forms. And we're in a separated container. And all of our fear is based on this alienation, this loneliness, this separation. And we spend a lot of our lives, again, either killing what seems to be other than me or us, and then trying to hook up with others to make them part of us, to form these alliances the dilemma of living in separated form. To know the to, to know your own soul. To find the Christ Buddha nature within is to find an elevated perspective where you can, from a position of harmony rather than discord, resolve your disputes and maintain a higher standard, um, a more refined set of ethics and values and and beliefs, because you have this bigger picture, this this elevated perspective, all of it offered by the idea of an oversoul that lives above you now and within you now in heaven and is accessible to you now. But, of course, if the master is within, you don't really need church except for fellowship and worship, and that's what it should be. It should be a place where people get together and party and celebrate, and some teaching is offered, but the primary responsibility has to be on you. If the responsibility is on the institution, then it's a cult. It might be a very big cult, but it's a cult if the authority is in the institution to tell you the one right way and the one thing to believe or the two or three or four things to believe, (laughs) whatever are their rules, we can get into quiet, calm, relaxed, safe, meditative, contemplative states and open ourselves to this higher knowledge where you think of it, whether you think of it as coming down from your own soul, from Jesus, from Buddha, from Father God Almighty. Does it really matter? It seems to me what would matter would be the quality of the information. does it solve problems? Does it heal you? Does it improve the quality of your life? Does it enlighten you and bring light to the darkness in your life? If the answer is yes, then go for it. You know if it's dark and greedy and 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 selfish and materialistic and vengeful let go of it, it it doesn't feel inspiring at all (laughs) you know the difference especially when you're quiet especially what what religion calls temptation is often just the stress of an overstimulated person with too much going on too much emotional turmoil and, and too many thoughts TMI too much information, too much going on right as if we don't continue our high stress lifestyles and and the frenetic way in which we live, we're just going to die. You know, it's like the idea: if you did nothing, you'd continue to live. I'm afraid escapes most people. If you just sit and do nothing, you will live. Do you have to breathe? Yes. Do you need water and food? Yeah. Anything else? Not really. Stay warm, right? A little shelter, maybe some companionship. You know Maslow's hierarchy. From there, our needs are few. And the idea that we have to work, 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 and think, 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 and feel, 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 and wring ourselves out like a like like wringing every drop you can get out of a washcloth or something. In order to earn a living or to be alive, be a living is, I would say, something we should look at a little more carefully. Challenge yourself. I am a living. And if I sit here, right here, right now, I could greatly simplify my life. You know, reduce my desires, lower my my expectations from the physical world and find a better balance with those things that, as you say, money can't buy. I've often thought if uh, even the, the most materialistic among us admit that you can't take it with you, then why do we spend so much time gathering it up? I mean, the sarcasm of the bumper sticker he who dies with the most toys wins it is sarcastic right and yet that's what we do consume 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 what if we didn't what if we put our attention on something we can take with us what would that be let me open that up and and maybe we can get some response as we go to the questions If we all know you can't take it with you, then beyond providing for our basic needs, why are we acquiring so much material stuff? And if we shifted our attention instead to developing what we can take with us, what would that be? All right? What would that be? And then could you create an openness, a receptivity, and alignment to your own oversoul and receive that inspiration that revelation that insight, that realization of what really matters for you right now in your life with the people that you love finally let me say that the magic of the grail and the magic of the soul is the middle between God and man, between spirit and matter, is that the cup is receptive to divine will, but positive to the material world in that it quenches our thirst for spirituality. That's the magic of the grail. And if you've ever studied anything about the way in which uh, communion the, um, the Catholic Mass is basically about uh, communion, the, the preparation of the Eucharist and the celebration of this Last Supper. And There is a point where the host is held in the bottom of the chalice and and prayed upon and then lifted to a higher point above the chalice, which would represent the higher heart, the divine heart the oversoul if you've ever seen these pictures of Christ with a heart on the outside of his body the so-called immaculate heart that's the soul the higher heart you know we can experience small l love the way you you know tend to love each other romantically or the way you love your family or the way you love your golden retriever or your kitty cat uh, there is a higher love, there's a capital L love that is non-exclusive and all-inclusive and uh, without condition and uh, so compassionate that it includes even people you don't like, even even your enemy. But that stands so far above us that most of us have little experience of it. And... Uh, That's just the beginning of the allegory of the grail as the soul. Let me go back and tell you the Fisher King story that I began to tell you, and then we'll go to the questions and the comments. So Robin Williams in this film, The Fisher King, is telling Jeff Bridges in the park the story of the Fisher King and King Arthur and the Knights Templar and all of this. There's one particular story of Arthur later in life, and he still has not found the grail. And he's aged, and he's ill, and he's in his deathbed, and he's basically been left alone. There's very few people around to attend to him. And uh, a fool walks into the palace, not even knowing that it's a palace. And because he's a fool, he sees the king in bed and knows not that he is a king, only that he is an old man and apparently sick and dying. And the fool says to the ailing man, who's actually King Arthur, just doesn't know it, is there anything I can do for you? Can I help you? And the king said, yes, if you could, but give me a cup of water. And the fool looks around and sees not far away a big bucket, and it's full of water, and well water, spring water, and there's a cup on the ground, and he, he picks up the cup and scoops out some water and gives it to the king, and the king begins to drink, and his thirst is quenched, and he feels much better, but then suddenly as he looks at the cup, he realizes he's holding the grail that he's searched for all of his life, and that his night have searched for, and all of these grail legends and stories of the Knights Templar, the Knights of the Round Table, and all that they represented in their understanding of Christianity, contained, represented by this grail. And he turns to the fool and he said, here it is, you found it, the grail. I've spent my entire lifetime looking for the grail, the holiest of relics. How did you do this? How did you find this? And the fool said, I don't know. I only saw that you were thirsty. That's the point. And again, make of that what you will. To me, it simply says we err when we look for the physicalness of our desires. And we're never going to find the the fulfillment and the contentment, the peace and the happiness that we seek in anything material, no matter how magical its powers may be. It's in the longing of humans. It's in what motivates us. It's in what prompts us to care why things even matter to us. Why did the fool care that this old man appeared thirsty that's called love and that's what the grail represents love in the highest form the soul the father aspect of god to the mystic represents god's will the mind of god it is the son the christ or buddha nature the the messenger the prophet that corresponds to the over soul There's not much said about the soul in many religions, but it's there. Even Buddhism, which denies the existence of a soul, in the higher teachings, it's there. It just is so similar to the idea of a Brahman god. Well, Brahman and Atman would be a way of explaining it. It just doesn't translate well that god could be broken into bits. God cannot be broken into bits. That's why there has to be this magnetic love that allows the one to manifest in so many different bits and apparently separated forms while remaining unaffected and and undiminished. These are beautiful and rich concepts, and I hope I'm able in these short webinars just to give you a little taste of, of what they offer you. And so that, in the simplest sense, is an introduction to not merely the legend of the Grail, but the mystical uh, traditions of the uh, the Grail. Um, let me go to the questions. I'm still a little confused. I've got such a big control panel in front of me with telephones and so much, and I sort of got to come back from where I go when I teach to uh, (laughs) find the questions. Okay, so if you have any questions for us, um, you can either type them into the text box on the web page in front of you or uh, use the telephone. And if you're already on the telephone, or once you get confirmed entering the conference ID and all of that, you can get my attention and raise your hand by pressing star 2, on the telephone touchpad, and we can unmute you if you have a question, star two on the touchpad. We'll start with the text questions and comments, and um, we begin with Carol in La Habra, Carol Postel. Hello, Carol. She says, hello, Michael and Doreen. Aloha. And uh, we also have from Iowa, from Ottumwa, Iowa, Norman Moore is with us. And, uh, I think of a Tumwa, I think, wasn't it Radar in MASH? It was from a Tumwa, Iowa. Hmm. I'm not sure, but I think so. Anyway, Norman uh, says, Last night I caught Ian Punnett and Dr. Bart Ehrman discussing biblical contradictions. And part of the discussion had to do with the different writings from sources with divergent points of emphasis the nature of the soul would be, I should think, one of those sticky points that in general have been distorted over time. Yeah, bingo. The nature of the soul uh, is a book that I, actually there is a book with that title that I studied and and taught from for several years by a woman named Lucille Cedar Crayons, The nature of the soul. But um Many books of many titles have attempted to address this mystery, and that's what we're talking about, that middle ground between the one and the many, between unity and diversity, between spirit and matter. Um, The magnetic field between the poles of the bar magnet, which really, you know, the, the, the important role of that allegory in magnetism is that it's the magnetic field that unifies the polarities. Without the middle element or the magnetic field, polarities are just opposites. You see? Opposites, opposing, threat, enemy, fear, death, destruction, (laughs) nuke them, right? Everybody in the North Pole of the bar magnet says, those South Pole guys are different than us. We're going to have to nuke them. Uh, the beauty of the third element, the soul in the middle, the magnetic field, if you will, is that it unifies those opposites into polarities, such that there's no point on the bar magnet where you can escape the influence of one side or the other, one pole or the other, both poles are influencing you to varying degrees no matter where you are on the bar magnet or the field around the bar magnet. Remember when you were a kid and you sprinkled the iron filings on the paper and shook it over the bar magnet? That's the Christ. That's the soul, you see. Um, That's the concept, anyway. In Albuquerque, Donna is with us. Michael, I really like today's session. I love your delivery. So laid back and uh, free to decide with such great humor. Thanks a lot. Uh, Donna, she says, keep up the good work. Nice to hear from you. Uh, Philip in Los Osos says, I am a living. I am a living. He says, I like that. Uh, what can we take with us? What is success for each of us by living that simplified Uh, Love your webinars. Thank you. And uh, hold on a sec here. Uh, Philip, uh, thanks for that. Uh, um, I appreciate that. I, I guess my answer to the question, and of the four of you that have commented, only one of you have addressed the question, I pose, what could we take with us? I think that uh, what I mean by that is memories of love, of kindness, of the experience of sharing love and happiness and joy and peace and all of its wonderful exquisite qualities. That, I would argue, we can take with us. And so... What if we devoted our lives to consuming, if you will, to creating more love in the world? Maybe that we could take with us. Right? As you get older, you spend more and more of your time reflecting upon a lifetime of loving relationships and happy memories. People wax nostalgic. They... Diaries and and photo albums that they can flip through to remember happy times. Well, if that's what you can take with you, then why aren't we why aren't we focused on that? Then cynically admitting, well, you can't take it with you, but I'm going to spend my whole life earning and spending and producing and consuming stuff. I saw Annie Leonard on Colbert. I ran her the soundtrack from her movie three years ago on KPFK, and I'm so happy that it's now had over two million hits, Story of Stuff. Just Google Story of Stuff, and you'll see the video. It's about 20 minutes long by Annie Leonard. The story of stuff. I'm totally in love with this woman. She is so eloquent in her speech. She's done her homework. She's proving how any individual can make a difference. And she's making a difference. I'm glad I remembered to mention that. Check it out, story of stuff. Because, again, she's talking about what you cannot take with you and, and what's headed for the landfill. And the the consequences of stuff and the damage we do not only when we manufacture stuff, but on the other end, when we dispose of the stuff, we do even more damage. So we need some stuff, right? <laughs> but maybe not that much stuff. Thank you, Philip. Nice to see you again. Carol's uh, saying... That uh, Oh, this is a private message from Carol. Okay, Carol, I got that. Thanks. Um, and Philip and Los Osos then goes on, and he says, uh, Seth Speaks, uh, or from the book "South Speaks, The Eternal Validation of the Soul, Jane Roberts, one of my favorite books. Uh, I, I love Seth Speaks. I read it in 1975, the year I moved to Los Angeles from Detroit, and it was a big book for me. Phil in Canoke Park says, hello. He says, sorry I missed the first hour of the program because of the time change. Well, better late than never, Phil. Set those clocks forward. Diane in Albuquerque, she said, uh, we take with us and leave behind our love. There you go. Bingo. That's what we are talking about. And uh, ABQ. I wonder where ABQ is. Oh, that's Albuquerque. That's still Diane in Albuquerque making our mark is the joy and the care we leave behind when giving back Yeah, we know this stuff that's why I love doing this on Sundays and hopefully you enjoy coming whenever you can is because we do know this stuff right it's just a matter of uh, whether we're going to remember it and practice it in our lives okay uh you got the telephone number if you want to give me a call. We've got a lot of folks online today, but only one person with a hand up, and it's uh, our regular caller, Robert, who I'm going to say hello to real quickly here because Robert's always got good stuff to add. Hello, Robert.
1: Hello, Michael. Aloha. Aloha, and welcome to the Mystery School today. Uh, thank you. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Thanks I for wonder, showing
0: everybody how easy it is to call, because I want to I wanna encourage more calls in the future. But go ahead.
1: Yes, uh, really simple. There's a lot of numbers, not just the uh, 415. There's a lot of local. There's probably 100 local numbers all over the country uh, that people can call into rather than call the 415 area code. That's right. And uh, you just hit star 2 on the phone to raise your hand. And uh, here we are. Here we are. It's that easy, just like a radio. It, uh, totally. Hey, I wonder if I might. Oh, uh, sorry.
0: Better than radio. I didn't have to drive to this radio station.
1: That's true too. This is kind of like your, 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 truly your own gig—a home yeah. radio yeah. station.
0: Yeah, and no
1: commercials. Commercial free. Absolutely. That's
0: right. Nobody trying to get you to buy a Toyota. <laughs>
1: or okay. any other car. Oh, really? I wondered if I might uh add a little do uh, a little input on that question you posed. Yeah. The two prong question. It was a two prong question, actually. Um you know why do we um, you know, persist in this frenzied uh quest for acquisition stuff and you could you could do a whole webinar on this, but essentially, <clears throat> because every being that's born on this planet, uh, before they're able to develop a conscious center that can say no, I won't have that as part of my operating software, is conditioned to believe in scarcity, lack, and uh, the need for competition with other beings. We are taught, conditioned by everyone around us that in order to survive, we must compete with others to eke out an existence. This is uh, unfortunate to say the least. The second part of that question, what can we take with us, is to me another way of asking, well, wait a minute. If life is not for all this acquiring, and in fact we don't need to compete for others, for our existence, what is life for? Well, life is for the human vantage point offers us the ability to acquire greater knowledge of being. It's difficult to understand until one has experienced himself in states other than waking. But the reality is the vast majority of being in human being isn't aware that it is at all. That's right. The goal, then, the work of a lifetime, is to develop not merely intellectual knowledge of being, but experience of greater being. And as we do that, as the totality of our being unfolds before us in the form of greater and greater experience of what we actually are then the love that is beyond the personal love you're talking about naturally unfolds. And when we leave, we don't take something with us. It takes us. Oh, that's nice. That's nicely said.
0: And these altered states that we've both suggested can be found in meditation can be accessed in other ways. If we, I was thinking about beginner's mind the other day and the Buddhist teaching of looking at something as if you've never seen it before. Um, If people are willing just to play around with that idea, pick up a pencil or any object, a coffee cup, uh, that's so familiar to you, and look at it. Take a breath and relax. Slow everything down if you can by letting go. And look at it like you've never seen anything like it before in your life, as if you were, you know, 18 months old and were fascinated. But, you know, you give a baby a red ribbon and it just tastes the red and, and is totally intrigued by the color and, and the texture. And, and we lose that, tragically, because we think we know something, right? <laughs> so yeah. if we could bring that beginner's mind, to to our everyday existence we we could quickly create that little shift and and maybe you don't hold it for too long before you get sucked back into the world but it's a nice uh it's a nice way to to make things new again i i try it on my guitar every once in a while i'll pick up my guitar like i've never seen a guitar before and doesn't take long before I learned something brand new, even though I've played the darn thing my whole life.
1: We're resisting our tendency to name anything and to do, as you say, will will really do what I call reestablishing our connection with the miracle of things. Yeah. You know, to, to hold a paper cup in your hand and to realize, not on an intellectual level, but with the with You know, with your cell mass, what a miracle that the thing even exists.
0: The simplest,
1: most, you know, what do we call it, uh, mundane object in the world, the fact that it exists at all. We take so much for granted. We take everything for granted, but the reality is it's all a miracle that any of it exists.
0: Yeah. Uh, the more time I spend on the Science Channel watching this micro and macro science, you know, the nano stuff and the subatomic and the quantum, and then on the other end, the the astronomy and the, what they're learning about the size of the universe and the idea of multiple universes and stretching my imagination in both directions... Um, you, you can't get a handle around infinity because infinity has no around <laughs> but it's uh it sure can breathe some fun and enjoyment and and wonder and awe and i I like the word enchantment i i i am a little concerned sometimes that that empirical science tends to drive the enchantment out of things and the magic goes away but it shouldn't because it's just given us more stuff to be enchanted about and life is so magical that we have only ourselves as you've indicated to to to, to hold responsible if we refuse to see the magic in the existence of anything or the miracle of breath, or that your eyeballs can perceive reflected light as objects in the distance. <laughs> it just goes on and on. Hey. Robert, give me a parting shot at another call.
1: Well, you know, that's uh, the uh, one thing the science, the, the quantum science is good for, is it is a new it is a new contemplation. We don't have to get hung up in the math, because the math sort of us the spirit. It's a language very few people can participate in, but in fact the realizations that are coming to us are, as you suggest, the new contemplation. Right. There, uh, they're they're uh they can connect us with uh this uh well this this higher self, this greater sense of being, this uh this soul which in fact is a consciousness that is not bound to the material. Right. Hey, take care man.
0: Thank you, Robert. Appreciate the call. All
1: right, bye bye. Have a
0: good day, aloha. And uh, let's go to Albuquerque, and Diane, you're on the webinar with Michael. Hi, Diane. Aloha. Diane, you still there?
2: Yeah, can you hear me?
0: Oh, I can now, yeah. Hi.
2: Hi. You know, I, I really agree with what's being said. I think what's sad is that so many of us are caught up in that race of survival, that it takes us so long before we take a deep breath and begin to experience what life's really all about. And I think our subconscious minds throughout our lives is constantly knocking on the door of our consciousness, you know, trying to to open us up. And then when the race is over and we have time, I think the subconscious mind begins to teach. and I think that's when we begin to figure it all
0: out. So there's even an appetite or a thirst for, depends on what side you look at it, from you saying the subconscious is knocking, the higher self is calling out and saying, yoo hoo don't forget us, we're out here, you know, there's more, lots more over here. And do you think that the... The false self, then, is trying to cast about and make that same connection that uh, our desires and our appetites for peace and love and understanding sort of work in the same program from the other direction.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. And I think it's, you know, you really get that on your deathbed when you're going to pass to the other side. I've never heard anyone say gosh, that was a great job I had in 1970. You know, instead they're talking about the people they've loved and how they loved and how they were loved.
0: Or I wish I'd spent more time at the office.
2: Yes, you never hear that. (laughs) And all those things you collect throughout your life, uh, boy, I've had an experience with that in the last couple of years. They end up in estate sales for 10 cents on the dollar. They mean nothing. You know, they might bring some joy temporarily to someone else, I guess, for 10 cents on the dollar. But they won't fill you up.
0: You know, um, I look at uh, having having moved to Hawaii, and, you know, you got to float everything out here. And so I thought I left a lot of stuff behind. I actually did. I got rid of a lot of stuff. But then after getting here, I realized how much I brought that I really shouldn't have. And then my wife and I moved uh, a second time about a year after we first landed and got rid of even more stuff. And I look around, and I can see why I hold on to it. I mean, I've got a box here of diplomas and degrees. All right. There they are in a box. I've got um a college ring over here. I don't wear it anymore and at the time Diana it was the most important thing. It represented four years of it was like the diplomas, they're symbols, you know, but now it's just sort of a ring sitting in a box over here.
2: Right. Um, and when you're gone, when you're gone, it's usefulness. Is pretty
0: much gone. <laughs> it's meaning, anyway, yeah. 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 It's just a ring, but it's it's, you know, to somebody it ties, else. It ties you to your
2: memories.
0: Yeah. So it's a world, this is what Robert was saying, you know, what we're acquiring here is really symbolic of what we really want to get our hands on, which is happiness and love and feeling safe and Connected and and the experience of healing and a new day and and that kind of stuff and um, that's always and probably always will be at the deepest desires of human beings. This this uh, my wife Doreen calls this the divine homesickness, and we're not even sure where that term comes from. Uh, somebody said it was uh, Roberto Saggioli coined it in Theosophy. But wherever it comes from, divine homesickness—the idea that all of our, all of our love. In fact, maybe every desire we have, even the desire for material things, or the desire to eat too much, or um, whatever—Tiger uh, Woods' sex addiction—that uh, every appetite, every longing, every desire we have is an attempt to resolve the anxiety that comes from having been separated from our source and, and having to live out here in this separated body in a world of separated forms, well, it's not only lonely, it's scary. But what we want to surround ourselves with are not more forms, but that's what we do.
2: If we, yeah, and I think I think not just the separation, but I think all of us, um, early on are searching. I mean it's a quest. And some people search for these answers in A church, on A Corner, all their lives, and some people search the world for answers.
1: Yeah. Well,
0: I like to travel.
2: <laughs>
0: I do too. <laughs> Diane, thank you. Uh, bye. I look look forward to talking to you again soon. Okay, bye bye. A- Aloha. See, I come out of a call like that and I feel like going right into one of my radio things. You know, hey, it's 10 minutes after the hour you're listening to. Well, I like this. I like using the phones and the web, and we'll continue to do this. Uh, I'm glad you remembered to set your clocks forward so you're all on the new earlier Daylight Savings Time. Thanks for being with us today. Let's do a guided imagery, a brief visualization exercise and then I'll let you go. Remember, this program is available by podcast. And as streaming audio, I have a built-in send-one-to-a-friend gadget that will make it easy, easy, easy for you to forward this program to a friend that you think would really enjoy it. If you thought of somebody today, a friend or an associate, came to mind while you were listening to this webinar, this class today, and you were thinking, boy, I sure would like Joe or Mary or Sally or Pete to hear this. Here's a way to do it, for free, simple. Go to theagelesswisdom.com, and the word the, the T-H-E, is part of the address, so after the W's, theagelesswisdom.com, click on Homepage to go inside, and then click on Web Teleconferences. That's what these are. You'll see the whole archive is in there along with a gadget that says send one to a friend or share one with a friend. And um, you just enter their email and first name, any message you want to include, and zoom, zoom, zoom. It's off and done and, and uh, an easy thing for you to do. So, it, Programs are deliberately not copyrighted so that you are encouraged to spread the news, and invite your friends. Forward the newsletter you get. If you're not getting the newsletter, see a place where you can sign in, again, at theagelesswisdom.com when you first come in the door. Also, we have a social net very much like Facebook for listeners of this program and others who are interested in metaphysics and mysticism. We just set it up. We've got a little over 70 people from all over the United States, and and a couple of people in Europe, and it's very cool. Um, I had an Aussie sign up the other day too, so um, it's very cool. And all you have to do is add Ning to the middle of the URL. So the social net site for the Ageless Wisdom is the AgelessWisdom.Ning.com. That's n like Nancy I N G. TheAgelessWisdom.Ning.Com. Sign up and sign in often. There's chat, video, photos, discussion groups, uh, MP3 players, um, all kinds of cool stuff. Place where you can, uh, oh, uh, again, very much like Facebook, but for people that are really, really interested in personal and spiritual development. And from a, from a. You know, an overview from a comparative point of view. No one right way, necessarily. So if that sounds good to you, be a part of that, too. All right, if you close your eyes, if this is a good time for you, get comfortable. And um, do a few head rolls in one direction and then the other and some shoulder shrugs. Get loose, neck and shoulders. Put your shoulders back to open up your rib cage. Feel balanced and centered. And then begin to breathe. Nice, slow, deep breaths. Pause as you peek. And exhale just as slowly as you inhaled. all the way out, beyond where you'd normally stop, all the way, and then do it again, as slow as you can. Inhaling, it takes practice to really slow it down, to feel that safe. And as you exhale, it's the sigh of relief, the sigh of release. Feel the letting go. And after three or four, nice, slow, deep breaths like that, just allow your body to find its own rhythm its own depth of breath and gently place your attention on the bottom of your nose at the point where breath enters the body and watch its ebb and flow feel how the air feels as it enters the nostrils And as you exhale, watching your breathing without causing it, witnessing almost as if it were somebody else's body breathing, allowing yourself to mindfully detach and realize that you exist as awareness awareness of your breathing and as you move your awareness from the bottom of your nose into the center of your rib cage into the area of the heart allow yourself to feel the feeling of love the longing to reach out and simply hold a hand. The warmth and satisfaction of hearing a kind voice, even if over the telephone, reassure you, remind you that you're missed, to tell you that they love you that they really, really care. Notice that this is no effort. This is something that you allow. You permit yourself to experience love. And as you experience it, The idea of being loved or loving or lovable just sort of merges into love. It loses its sense of direction. Is this me giving love or me receiving love? And it's a question that seems to make sense when we need love but in feeling loved and loving and lovable there's no sense of giving or receiving as if love is more magnetic than some commodity that we pass back and forth it's a field it's a magnetic embrace That connects all things to all things. In spite of what might appear to be a separation of form. A distance in between. Or a sense that something is other than this thing or that. There's a sense that you're seeing a bigger picture, more inclusive, not through a reasoning though, just more a sense of completion, a sense that things are okay. Do you feel it? Will you let yourself feel it? what if it were true that everything's okay yeah there's a lot that needs to be done in your life and in the world much of it seems to be devolving like entropy going from order to chaos and running out of steam And you may think that much needs to be done. I wouldn't argue that. But what if you did it from a place of knowing that where you are right now is okay. It's just fine. It's true. And it's good. And it's beautiful. And you align with your intention what you care about. You remind yourself the kind of person that you are, what's important to you. How you've worked on giving up your anger, your need for vengeance. You stopped carrying grudges. You're less concerned about whether life is is fair or not. You know it to be an appearance. And you're feeling more settled in your life. Take another slow, deep breath. And as you exhale, relax and feel more settled in your life. I'm going to ask you to say to yourself an affirmation. I'll say it first before I ask you to repeat it. I want you to listen to it before I ask you to repeat it. The affirmation is simply that I am the soul. In form, but above and free of form. And I dedicate my life to the working out of the plan. And so if you'd like to repeat that after me, even if only tentatively at first, say to yourself, I am the soul, not what it means to Michael Benner, what it means to you say it, I am silently and internally I am the soul in form but above and free of form and I dedicate my life to the working out of the divine plan now what if we don't agree on the divine plan that's fine I'm not sure I could even explain to you my sense of what it is. You'd be challenged, no doubt, to share yours with me. But I trust, if we align our intentions and open our hearts, that each of us will have the best perspective for us. So whatever is your perspective of divine will or the plan the purpose for this whole thing. Devote yourself to it, rather than to your separated existence, just trying to keep your head above water or impress other people. What if there was a plan? What if you were not only an important part of the plan, but an essential part of that plan? given your uniqueness and true essential individuality, that certainly suggests you have an important role to play, an essential imperative part in the larger scheme of things. I am the soul, in form and above and free of form, To dedicate my life to the working out of the divine plan. I am the soul. You've seen your better nature, you've had glimpses of your higher angels, your better angels. You heard it called that. Of your genius, genie, Jim, Genius means a spirit, almost as if whispering in your ear. A higher self, a a daemon. Oddly, the word demon is born in daemon, a guide, a guardian angel. What if your guardian angel, what if your spirit guides, what if your Christos is available to you now to solve problems? And you could think of this as part of the one life and the absolute ultimate divinity of all things. But so accessible a kind of a an over self that stands between the mortal self and the Godhead. A reminder to sit quietly and access your inspiration, revelation realization, become a path of least resistance for that gentle precipitation down of realization and initiate that higher sense of self in new ways with each new day confirm that and so it is Take a slow, deep breath. Hold for a moment as you peek and as you exhale. ah. Open your eyes wide awake and alert, rested and refreshed, feeling fine, energized, and ready for a great Sunday or whatever day it happens to be. Far more people listen, it turns out, to this show as a podcast or streaming audio than the live program. But you're certainly invited to come and join us live one o'clock Pacific time, standard or daylight. It's always one o'clock Pacific, four o'clock in the east. In the summer it's twenty hours GMT. In the winter that's twenty one hours GMT. And um I guess that's code to our European and African friends. And uh we haven't we don't have any listeners in Asia yet, but we're looking forward to that too. And, and we may, I just don't know about it. but I want to thank you again for being here. I want to remind you that that this program and the newsletter and all the text articles that we do is all made possible by our subscribers at FocusedPassion.com. The uh, premium audio program is a series called Finding Yourself in Paradise. I, I, I do this with my partner of 35 years, my business partner and this field of personal and spiritual development, Steve Snyder, and we ask $0.99 cents a week, payable monthly at $3.96, to be a subscriber or a contributor and make all of this possible. So that's a studio-quality podcast, a conversation that Steve and I have on these types of topics, and each of those also contains a guided imagery exercise for a buck, less than a dollar a week, And again, we have all of this free because some of you are subscribers there. So, listen to your conscience and if you see an opportunity to contribute in that way, um, that'd be great. Okay, A buck a week supports all of this. Know that this program, again, is available by podcast, streaming archive, any podcast directory or the iTunes store. And We'll look for you next week. Thanks so very much for being here and telling your friends about it. As always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. This is Michael Benner. Aloha from Maui.